Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Great voices in opera and song with Chris Gaffney. And it is right on four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time. Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until six o'clock tonight. First of all, a great big thank you to all the people who have donated to the program during the past week. And hopefully some of you who haven't quite got round to it yet will think about it in the coming weeks. But a big, big thank you to everyone for supporting Community Radio 3CR. Today, Europe post-World War I with historian and author Brian McKinlay. The worsening situation for activists in Malaysia with environmental activist Lee Tan. The monthly segment looking at genetically modified organisms and why they should be removed with Bob Phelps, who's the director of the Gene Ethics Network. 60 years of activism for Tamil rights in Sri Lanka. I'll be speaking with Dr. Brian Singaratna, who's not actually a Tamil, he's a singer. And begin with Mr. Kevin Healy to see what sort of a week he's had. A week, Jane Listener, when long-term contributor to parliamentary democracy and big, big helicopter fan, Bronnie Bash Up the Workers, direct quote. I've met Donald Trample the poor, and he seemed like a perfectly reasonable type of person. Well, good news for Bronnie, because we can be sure Donald would reciprocally see our Bronnie as a perfectly reasonable type of person. Thwarted by her own party from continuing to serve us, and won't she be missed? Maybe, just maybe, a contribution to service with the perfectly reasonable Donald Trample the, Trample the poor awaits. She may join Donald in opposing gun control as the National Rifle Association has endorsed him for his defence of human rights and following the Orlando massacre leading to more long-haired, commie, greenie, wooden worker and iron lots calling yet again for gun control, the NRA attacked calls for potential terrorists to be denied access to kill, kill, kill firearms, including military automatic big-time kill firearms, because they have every right under the Second Amendment to those firearms and kill, kill, kill firearms, don't kill anyone. Well, more correctly, don't kill anyone unless someone holding them lets fly. And so it is people who kill, and if they were denied kill, kill, kill firearms, doubtless they'd invade nightclubs and churches and mosques and schools and public places and strangle everyone there one by one. Victims that line up to be killed because they, the stranglers, have every right to kill them because I'm sure there must be the something or other amendment which gives them that God-given right. So banning kill, kill, kill guns would be a waste of time and an attack on human rights and God and civil liberties, even if the end result is a touch uncivil. And perfectly reasonable Donald knows that. 
Now, we all know that beyond the serious approach of the week that was, occasionally we make the odd attempt at very bad humour, which looks even worse when compared to great comedians falling about with their audience at split your sides, piss your pants, true comedy. Great comedians like Eddie McGuire, Women Upset, James Bray, sure I'm not sexist, Wayne Caress Breasts and, and um, Danny Pauly and... Well, as for Eddie McGuire, women upset, not all women were upset. Giant political mind Pauline Hoonson declared it was just a joke, get a life, move on. Where's your sense of humour? Next thing you'll object to a few tasteful splits aside, no racism intended jokes about Asians and blacks and Muslims and illegal boat people. And Eddie has a long history of not being sexist and not being racist and not being tasteless. So, so long we know that when he says something sexist, he is most definitely not being sexist. When he says something racist, he is most definitely not being racist. When he cracks a brilliant line about violence against women, he is most definitely not condoning violence against women. Just make a joke about drowning a woman if you don't like what she writes about you, but for goodness sake, it was just a joke. Everyone knows I'm not sexist. Everyone knows I'm not racist. Some of my best friends are women. Some of my best friends are monkey, are Aboriginal people. Yeah, just a few boys, a few guys having a bit of fun. Next time they should invite Pauline into the studio and really ramp up the comedy. Speaking of jokes, let's end the tension. What we've been waiting for, yes, with 11 more long days of this election fever to go, it's slowly coming down. Once again, our very special week that was election coverage. And speaking of jokes, which joker had the mischievous wit, the wicked wit, to sit our former great and beloved Prime Minister Nuclear Hawk himself next to his nemesis, the world's greatest worst ex-treasurer, ex-big supremo Paul, at the Socialist Party launch and ensure little Billy had to embrace former big supremo Julia Gorlinghardt next to them, whose welcoming smile was about as sincere as a politician's promise. Pity little Kebby Rod for the workers couldn't make it from Moscow, where he is lobbying for the big UN of the US of the UN of the world job, as he could have sat next to Julia, and too would have embraced little Billy with the same sincerity, given little Billy managed to knife them both. And doubtless they would have enthusiastically beefed out solidarity forever. But it's very confusing... Well, to me, I won't assume for you, listener, but 13 days before the big day, the socialists launched their campaign. Well, what were those past six and a half weeks all about? And the Caring Business Class Party won't start campaigning until next weekend. One week of campaigning. How confident must they feel when they could have been campaigning for seven weeks? So dredging up the little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo back in the last even darker ages in seats that used to be Blue Ribbon had nothing to do with the election apparently. But don't they remember that as Big Supremo he achieved the near impossible and lost his own seat? 
well, we can only hope he works his magic again. Maybe they'll mention the smash the evil union's jackboots commission, the great urgent national issue which forced poor big supremo Malcolm Tunnerbull to call the election. The most pressing issue in the country. The cruel impediment to jobs and growth and innovation. Yet, as we've mentioned before, sunk without trace. Meanwhile, the really key policy area is that the socialists will send us broke because they haven't told us what services they'll cut to not send us broke, split infinitive, and the caring business class party will send us broke because they want to hand all this money to the filthy rich and both tell us that after all that, that everything will be absolutely fine sometime after the next election. And the socialists said the cruel welfare cuts they had opposed because they were cruel and heartless were now not cruel and heartless, but a responsible election promise proving how economically responsible they are. On that tax cut for the filthy rich, the three-card Thimble and P Logic of the Week award to the sundry chambers of profits who attacked the socialists and the Greens for opposing tax cuts for the filthy rich because they said they are increasingly demonising caring employers of 80% of all workers. Here we go again. It's left to caring employers to defend workers against attacks from those who would deny workers the fantastic benefits of their caring employers getting a handout, allowing them to employ more workers, increase productivity, increase wages, invest in jobs and growth. Because caring employers would never take the tax cut and just pocket it or spend it on a new luxury yacht or car or, or well, a few little luxuries generally. Although, as we keep saying, when they don't pay the tax rates they complain about, why complain about them? But yet again, caring employers thinking only of the workers they so care about. That was this week's Week That Was special in-depth election report. Hope it's helped us decide. A lie to another election as former Socialist Party big supremo Kim Beesneys, he who set a world record for cravenness under fire during the Tampa dispute, launching years of the Socialist Party competing with the caring business class party for the World Cruelty Award to those fleeing your own invasions. Kim Bomber Beesneys has returned from his sinecure as US of the UN of the US of the World Ambassador and taken a seat on the board of Lockheed our warnings or else Martin manufacturer of the 18 billion real figure thus far and rising for the train killer strike fighters true blue as he has ordered even though the product we're paying for hasn't even got off the ground yet not rising like its cost as a confirmed socialist Kim must have taken the directorship of one of the world's major train killer manufacturers as a commie spy a fifth columnist and how it must hurt poor Kim, who was a former minister for offence of trade killing, must hurt to sacrifice his personal beliefs for the common socialist good. Just taking a look at Kim, it's fair to say the round of social slaving on our behalf in the US of has certainly taken its toll, certainly expanded the already expansive, slaving his guts out literally. 
prompting the week that was to suggest when or if they finally get the 18 billion waste of money to work to get off the ground, we plonk bomber in the bomb bay and see what it's like when a huge lump of lard hits the ground and explodes. As a great believer of peace through trade killing, Kim and his co-board members would be thrilled to see old foes patching up their differences, as Vietnam has also put in a huge order for Lockheed are warning or else, or else peace-loving train-killer jets. Finally, listener, on those fleeing our invasions, if you've got a chisel, hammer, mallet, pneumatic drill, that sort of thing to spare, could you drop it all them into 3CR by next week? Because we want to put Malcolm's assertion over the despairing desperates on Nauru and Manus Island that he hasn't got a heart of stone to the test. Until then, good afternoon. And many thanks to Mr Kevin Healy. And as usual, you can hear... Kevin, tomorrow morning on City Limits between 9 and 10 on Community Radio 3CR, and that's us. Next, Brian McKinlay, author and historian. In recent months on this program, I've been looking at all of the major events that followed the outbreak of World War I in 1914. I've looked at events such as the Irish Easter Uprising, the great battles of the First World War, the Russian collapse, the Russian Revolution, of course, and eventually in 1918, the collapse of the German Empire, the revolution in Germany, the creation of the Weimar Republic, and also the collapse of the monarchies in other countries like uh, Austria-Hungary and Turkey, uh, and the way in which the old order in Europe, which had lasted for centuries, After all, the Habsburgs had been in power in Vienna for 300 years. But suddenly, in those four years of the First World War, everything was swept away. And by 1918, little remained of the old European order. And it shook and uh, shocked a great many Europeans. The the Age, the Melbourne paper in uh, November 1918, had a headline which was pretty colourful for the time. It said... Thrones fall like autumn leaves. Well, it was autumn in Europe in 1918, a bleak, cold Europe, marked by one other terrible event which came at the very end of the war, and that was the what was called the Spanish flu, though we know now that it had originated, in fact, in the United States. And this flu swept the world. Only a few places on the planet escaped this killer flu, which was much more virulent than any other flu in modern times, although the flu is a very ancient event in human history. But 1918 and 19, especially in Australia in 1919, saw the flu epidemic take 12,000 lives. We'd lost about 50,000 men in the First World War, and yet in a matter of a couple of months, the flu took 12,000 people. So this was one terrible moment at the very end of four terrible years almost like somebody said at the time the the four horsemen of the apocalypse you know war starvation and famine and then of course disease Uh, the Europe of 1918 therefore bore little relationship to the Europe of 1914 in 1914 European prosperity had had reached a new peak Uh, there had been little like it before 
Europe was linked by modern communications. The telephone was becoming common. Railways everywhere of high quality. Trade between European countries open and mixed in every respect. Uh, in 1914, hardly anybody could imagine what Europe would be like in 1918. But there would be tens of millions who would die on the battlefields, who would die of famine and hunger, in Russia particularly, where famine followed the revolution. Trotsky, one of the greatest of the communist leaders, uh, in an appeal to socialists everywhere to support the Russian revolution, used a famous phrase which sums it all up. He said, comrades, I appeal to you to join us across the mountain of corpses. A terrible phrase, but it sums up what Europe in 1918 had been like. Look, even in Australia, a little country really of only five million people at the time, over 50,000 young men, a very substantial slice of the young male population, had died in the conflicts of the time. And many more would have died if Billy Hughes had got his wish and introduced conscription and sent tens of thousands of more Australians to die in the battlefields of the Western Front, which were just bottomless pits for the death of young men, three quarters of a million of whom died on the Somme in a couple of months. Now, the politicians everywhere by 1918 were hated and disgraced and that led, of course, to revolutionary movements everywhere. In 1917, the communists had come to power in Russia. And in 1918, there was a revolution in Germany, which briefly saw a communist government in Bavaria. A similar thing happened when the Habsburg Empire in Vienna collapsed. And there was a brief, year-long period of communist revolution in Hungary. In Austria, a battle was literally fought out in the first days after the war between the Austrian Socialist Party and the Austrian Communist Party for power in Vienna. In all these cases, the old ruling elites collapsed. Uh, the Habsburg royal family fled to Switzerland. The Kaiser spent the rest of his life, the next uh, something like 21 years of his life, in exile in Holland, in a comfortable little castle, by the way, provided by the Dutch Queen. In Turkey, a few years later, the Sultan was overthrown by Kemal Ataturk, who was determined to create a modern Turkish state that bore no relationship to the old Ottoman Empire. And in the Middle East, all the Ottoman countries, like Syria and Iraq, Jordan and so on, all collapsed and the Ottoman rule was replaced uh, briefly by Arab rule, but then the colonial powers came. At the end of the war, it had been decided to hold a peace conference, and the one nation that had survived all these events, unscathed in a sense, though it had a loss of men on the battlefield, was the United States of America. 1919 and 20 mark the real emergence of the United States as a superpower. In 1914, the United States had been isolationist, and it was Woodrow Wilson who, despite all his statements that he would keep America out of the war, did eventually bring them into the war in 1917. Partly because of the stupidity of the German government in launching submarine warfare on the Atlantic, which involved American shipping. And eventually this brought Wilson into the war, and he played a key role. 
in assisting Britain and France, who were near the end of their tether like Germany, and Russia had been. So the Americans finally emerged in 1919 as the great power of the time. President Wilson, a curious figure, in some ways... um, He was a conservative, he was a Democrat, but an ironclad conservative and a racist, especially on the question of desegregation of the, what were known as the Jim Crow laws in America, which kept Negroes from voting and having civil rights. Though Wilson talked about making the world safe for democracy, this didn't include American blacks. They, They had no role in any of this at all. Wilson, however, came to Paris Uh, early in 1919 for the conference at Versailles. Now, Versailles became just the word, the famous palace, of course, of the French monarchs till the revolution, was the place where it was held. It became the centre of, for the next six months, of an international conference that divided up and changed the boundaries of much of Europe. The key figure at Versailles, apart from Wilson, was the French president, Clément Coe, a vengeful, nasty little man in every sense of the word. France had paid a terrible price, millions of men dead, and much of northern France ruined. The battlefields of the Western Front had all been on French soil. Uh, and Clément Coe was determined to do two things. He would crush the Germans, who would be kept down forever, and he would exact a terrible penalty on them. Now, this desire for revenge against Germany was to be the cause of much bitterness between Germany and France that would come in the next two decades. Clemenco, I might add, was aided by Wilson and by Australia's Prime Minister Hughes, who turned up and determined to make a friend of Clemenco and also get the German colony of New Guinea for Australia. So uh, the Treaty of Versailles was really a treaty of revenge against Germany. Russia didn't attend because of the revolution and no one wanted to see the communist government represented. And the old Austro-Hungarian Empire broke up entirely. Austria and Hungary became separate, independent republics. And the countries of the Balkans, places we know well today like Serbia and Bosnia and Slovenia, All of those small countries of southeastern Europe, in their own way, a melting pot of races and religions and languages, also became independent. And they were lumped together at Versailles, in many cases against their will, by the treaty, and became part of a new country called Yugoslavia, which, of course, in our lifetime, has also vanished again in much bloodshed and turmoil. And much of the Balkans today resembles what it was in 1914, and a a real powder keg. Europe's boundaries were changed fundamentally. And although Britain and France were nominally the victors, before the war, you may remember I mentioned a man called Dernavo, a Russian politician, a conservative. But he said, no country can win a great industrial war. And even if you're the victor in the end, after much blood and suffering, you are going to be ruined. Now, this was a perfectly true picture of what Britain and France were like in 1920 and 21. And this ushered in in Britain a period of social turmoil. The British government foolishly 
went back on what was called the gold standard and purchases of British goods had to be made at the, the then rate of gold. This limited the sale of British goods in Europe. Crazy stuff. But the Conservative in power at the time thought this emphasised Britain's old glory, having a, a gold-backed currency as it had in the 19th century. For instance, Germany was forced to pay Britain and France as reparations for the war in coal, and German coal was taken away and given, in effect, to, to Britain and France. But the effect of this was to lower the price of coal right across Europe. And the people who suffered from this were the miners, in Britain particularly, who saw their wages reduced. And in 1926, this led to a general strike. After a long miners' strike... Much of the British workforce, the labour movement, came out in a, an eight-day general strike to support the miners' cause, and, and they were beaten by the Conservative government, which had prepared for just this event. But Britain was troubled through the 20s and the 30s by unceasing industrial and political turmoil. In France, a similar situation occurred. The French Socialist Party dissolved, well, collapsed, and uh, from being a large party before the war, it now became two. Uh, a minority became, or stayed, as the old Socialist Party, and a new party called the Communist Party of France uh, emerged as a major political force in France. And this happened across most of Europe. In 1919, the Germans, in the disaster of the, the war, became a republic. And they drafted a model republican democratic constitution. Berlin was in such strife that they met in a little town nearby called Weimar. And it became known as the Weimar Republic. Weimar's famous as the birthplace of Beethoven, by the way. But it became famous for a model constitution. And despite the terrors and sufferings of the war, the new Germany began as a democratic state. And again, there was this division between the socialists and the communists in Germany, who now became bitter enemies. And this was replicated in other countries like Austria and Hungary. And so Europe in 1919 was marked by all these terrible divisions. I would recommend a book... Uh, for your reading, it's just recently published by Professor Bloom, B-L-O-M, Philip Bloom, called Rupture. It's a funny name. It sounds like a medical textbook, doesn't it? But Rupture looks at the rupturing of the various European countries in the aftermath of the terrible conflict of World War I. One of the countries that came close to collapse in the early 20s because of the immense debt of the war was one of the poorer countries, and that was Italy. Italy went for three or four years through a series of crises, and in fact, on the left in Italy, it was hoped that this would lead to a revolution like Russia's and uh, that Italy would become a kind of Soviet republic. Well, the right wing in Italy was having none of that, and out of nowhere, there appeared a former socialist politician called Mussolini. Mussolini had dreamed up a new right-wing ideology called fascism. An American asked what was fascism was told by a writer that fascism is capitalism plus murder. 
that pretty well summed up Mussolini's regime. The old order in Italy survived, but when he came to power in 1923, he set about setting up a police state. The leader of the Socialist Party, Matteotti, was murdered, and Italy embarked on a 20-year period of fascist rule that would end at the end of the Second World War. You have to remember that Mussolini was in business 10 years before Hitler. But these fascist ideas now spread. There was a fascist regime set up in Hungary. And in many parts of Europe, fascist movements now appeared as a challenge to the left. That was the real purpose, to prevent left-wing parties and governments carrying out social reforms. These were the 1920s. But the 20s everywhere in Europe were influenced by the great boom, the roaring 20s, as they were called, in the United States. The Americans had entered the war, suffered casualties, but no damage to their own country. And in the 1920s, the Republicans came to power in 1920 and allowed a deregulated capitalist economy to roar ahead. And many people thought this was brilliant. Henry Ford had invented the cheap motor car. And millions of Americans were to get cheap cars, a completely new development. And the United States seemed to be, from 1920 on till 1930, seemed to be swept by this enormous boom on the stock market. Millions of Americans invented modest savings on Wall Street. And there seemed to be no end to the prosperity well, it wasn't much prosperity, of course, for black Americans who were still uh, segregated and very much persecuted by groups like the Ku Klux Klan uh, because many of the blacks had, at the end of the First World War, those blacks who'd served in the American army came back from Europe with relatively revolutionary ideas and these were soon to be crushed. But the 1920s in America saw, for most Americans, an unprecedented boom. Well, now, this was all to end in 1929 in the most famous stock market collapse in history, and that was the Wall Street crash of October 1929, in which tens of millions of people lost every cent of their savings. Companies were wiped out. Uh, and this was replicated right across the world, in Australia, in Germany, in Britain. Within a few months, the stock market as we've seen in our lifetime, had a tremendous collapse. And in many countries, banks collapsed. Now, this affected many countries, but nowhere worse than Germany, which during the 20s had been recovering splendidly from the damage of the war. But in 1929, the German economy collapsed, like the American one. In America, by the way, in this period, unemployment reached more than 20 million uh, in Germany, it reached about 12 million. And out of that came German fascism. The idea was already, thanks to Mussolini, well known in Germany, and led by a charismatic figure, Adolf Hitler. Now, for all these evil ways, Hitler was one of those politicians, oddly enough, like Donald Trump, who didn't have much to say at all about policies, but was mostly on about hatred and violence. And he appealed enormously to a German population who were now troubled by the Depression, as it was, uh, as much as they'd been troubled by the war. And millions of Germans trooped out to vote for Hitler. And this marked, in 1933, 
the beginning of the Nazi regime, and along with Mussolini, it marked the march to war, which would eventually terminate in 1939 in World War II. So if we look at the aftermath of World War I, the Russian Revolution and all the events around it, we can see how clearly all of these events pointed to another huge conflict in Europe and indeed across the world because fascism had taken root in Japan, which had never really been a democratic country but had at least not been as fascist as it became in the 30s with the intention, of course, of conquering China and this was to lead in the 30s to a long drawn out conflict between China and Japan into which America and other countries in the region would eventually be drawn. So the events of 1918 and 19 and the Treaty of Versailles were all the root causes of the endless disasters that would affect Europe in the 20s and 30s. And it's thanks once again to historian and author Brian McKinlay, this time looking at post-World War One Europe and the surrounding areas. And as he said, he's been, over the last couple of months, starting with Ireland back centuries ago, and now we're up to World War One, the end of World War One, And hopefully after... Two weeks, we'll have Brian back again, and I'm not quite sure the topic for the next one, but I'm sure it will be a good history lesson for 3CR. Which base provides key information for every US drone strike, played a crucial role in Iraq and Afghanistan wars, as well as providing targeting and surveillance information for the Israeli Defence Force? Star Wars. The Empire Strikes Back. War is terrorism. terrorism. It's the Pine Gap Joint Defence Facility, located just 20 kilometres from Alice Springs on Arundel Country, and this year marks 50 years of its inglorious existence. Come and join the closed Pine Gap protest near the gates of the base from September 26 to 30th. For all the details, head to closepinegap.org. Get in quick to book your early bird bus ticket from Melbourne for just $200 return. That's closepinegap.org. See that. Close Pine Gap is a 3CR supporter. Is terrorism. Now, if you have donated, and thank you very much, and you're not quite sure how to pay, this will help you along. Are you wondering how to pay your donation to 3CR's 40th birthday Radical Radiothon? You can pay online by going to 3cr.org.au or call us on 94198377. You can also visit us in person at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, and pay by cash, cheque or EFTPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. Thanks for supporting another 40 years of 3CR. Today... An update on the situation in Malaysia where human rights are becoming a thing of the past and corruption out of control. And I'm joined by environmental activist Lee Tan. Lee, the Linus Rare Earth Processing Plant. Once again, lenders have agreed to postpone payments which were due in May and 
or so in September until the end of the year. What have you been able to find out about the operations of the company? Well, the company is really running at a loss every day, every month. But because of the Japanese support, you know, Linus is able to continue on whilst its、uh, rival in America, the Malpass Molycorp Rare Earth Refineries, already declared bankruptcy due to the very low prices for the light rare earth elements that they're producing. Why is the price so low? Mainly because there was an over speculation several years ago, back in 2010, when China announced its embargo or its、uh, export quota on rare earth elements, trying to secure enough for its own supply, worried that there's going to be a surge in demand internationally as a result of the the, the push for green and clean, low emission technologies that uses rare earth elements. For batteries and a whole range of、um, items. So, have they found an alternative to rare earths? Yes, I have been researching on this、uh, through my postgraduate research at RMIT recently, and to my relief, although not huge amount of relief, there have been alternatives as a result of the protest action and as the market, you know, realised, especially people from the green technology. Sector realizes that rare earth processing is very harmful and and hazardous to local community and the environment. There've been greater effort to recover,、uh, use rare earth elements from、uh, waste, from electronic waste particularly, and also there've been efforts to look at other less footprint heavy, so called elements to substitute. You know, rare earth elements, and that's kind of encouraging from an environmental and、um, a social standpoint. But it, it hasn't actually helped the people in Malaysia, who will still have to shoulder the burden from the Linus waste. How much money is the government of Malaysia put into this project? I don't think they're putting in any money, but they've given twelve-year tax concessions. Well, perhaps not much revenue if they are running at a loss. Yeah, so that's revenue loss. The subsidy is probably through infrastructure like roads and cheap water supply and guaranteed water supply, perhaps, and other facilities that Linus is using in Malaysia with very low safeguards and you know no monitoring at all, as compared to if Linus. Was to open its plant in Western Australia, and what are the actual physical dangers of a plant like that for the people working in the plant, for the people living near the plant? If Linus had a very strong environmental safeguard, you know, with and invested huge amount of money building a permanent waste disposal unit for the radioactive waste, have the state of the art. Pollution control mechanism, then the harm would be minimal. But unfortunately, Linus has just used the very minimal requirements that look good on the outside. But when you actually dig deep into it, there are lots of problems. There will be air pollution with、um, acid rain and possibly radioactive elements escaping through air pollution if they are scrubbed. Uh, or their air pollution filter is not、uh, maintained properly, or if, is, if it 
you know, misfunction, malfunction, and if there's no checks and balances and monitoring. Similarly, with his uh, uh, water waste, there's no treatment at the moment. The wastewaters are getting pumped out through a canal into a uh, river, which is a significant river system because it is within a mangrove, a peat, tropical peat mangrove, supposedly a reserve, but there's no strategy, there's no plan to manage that reserve. And that river actually flows into the South China Sea, where many local fishermen are fishing from. And in fact, the estuary itself is a very important seafood catchment for the local people. And all of that will be contaminated through time. At what sort of time do you think? Probably already the contamination has started, particularly in wet tropical countries like Malaysia, where you have a yearly monsoon with uh, you know floods and what have you. And usually companies are very good at releasing their polluted water when there's a flood to try and dilute it and knowing that no one's going to monitor them, you know, they would do that to save cost and to minimize their need to worry about any, you know, ma- uh, managing any pollutants. I would say that right now it probably has some level of pollutions and maybe possibly radioactive contaminations, but no one's doing any monitoring. I cannot access any data because in Malaysia, the Official Secret Act protects the government from having to release any data. It is really, yeah, it's the antithesis to our Freedom of Information Act, which makes it really problematic. Is that just for a plant like Linus or is that for other businesses as well? Yeah, it's for any government data. So Linus might have submitted data, for example. It's monitoring data to the government. And then it will end there because no one will have access to it apart from the minister and the Department of Environment and the Atomic Energy Licensing Board, none of which had already had shown to be accountable to date. How many years has this been in? Oh, the the Official Secret Acts probably started probably during the era of uh, Mahathir or Muhammad, the Prime Minister. That would be in the 1980s. I don't think it started during the uh, insurgency period under the British. I think the Official Secret Act is, is, yeah, was brought in by Mahathir. Have they refined that act and broadened it over those years? I don't think they have to. <laughs> it was so bad anyway, and it has been applied across the board all those years and decades, and that's why the ruling coalition party can maintain their power since independence. I'll come back to that in a moment. I just want to get you to talk a little bit about Oliver Curtis and oh, Nick yes. Curtis. Nick Curtis has a very colourful son who lives in Sydney, who is a uh, stockbroker. Nick and Oliver co-own four companies, all of which are listed in the Sydney Stock Exchange. And recently, Oliver has been found guilty of insider trading, which is not surprising, actually. I think the case was around about seven years ago, but they were able to hire very top you know, QC lawyers to keep the case away from the court for as long as possible until recently. But unfortunate or fortunate for Oliver, in his insider trading deals, he had another partner, 
who had already served jail terms, and he managed to negotiate with the authority to lighten his jail sentences by dobbing in Oliver Curtis. So Oliver is now charged. The sentencing is yet to be finalized, but he will serve jail terms as well. I mean that shows a kind of character we're dealing with on the Linus case. Although Oliver is not involved in it, but If Nick and Oliver's are co-owning companies, we can more or less guess what's going on as well. Haven't they both got major shares in the company? I'm not sure about Oliver, but Nick Curtis definitely have. Well, getting back to the the situation in the Malaysia for the people who want to protest against the government, what laws are there now that are preventing people from showing any opposition to the government? There's so many at the moment. The Peaceful Assembly Act, so-called, you have to really apply to the government for permission to protest, and you have to fill in all the details, and they can reject you on grounds of security, all kinds of things. Uh, and then there's the Sedition Act, which basically give them a free hand to charge people, people who stand up for their rights, all of which are very controversial and, you know, very likely unconstitutional. But the worst of it all is the recently passed National Security Council Act by Parliament in Malaysia that took away power from the king or agong. The king is called agong in Malaysia to lend the power into the hand of the prime minister. At the moment, it is、uh, Najib Razak who has been linked with grand corruption of the biggest scale in Malaysian history, and that, of course, is problematic because you know there's been a lot of、uh, discontent amongst civil society and Malaysians, and you know that act essentially stops them from you know organizing any peaceful protest because it allows the government to easily declare. A state of emergency, and which means that there won't be any election. Najib will be forever the prime minister of Malaysia. He's been cleared of any charges in Malaysia. Well, not quite clear, but you know, some of the,、um, like for example, the Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission, they kind of conceded that there's been money missing. But what they did not do is to link the prime minister to the theft. Of billions of、uh, Malaysian wealth, based from the trust fund that's set up or the sovereign fund set up by Najib and other people, called the One MDB. Although there's been many investigation, in fact, I think he's been, this case been investigated in seven different countries, including Australia. Some of the countries like Switzerland,、uh, the US, and the UK have. Uncover that the prime minister's signature is on many of the documents that lead to the theft or the missing money, but nothing's happened in Malaysia in terms of、uh, prosecuting him. As we may recall, the prosecutor was a day away from、uh, issuing him the arrest warrant, but he was kidnapped and then later he was found dead and tortured, and his body was found in the drum, sealed with cement. Very brutal. Has anyone else suffered a fate similar to that, or is he the only one? So far, he's been、uh, the only victims because that was really a clear message sent out to people in Malaysia, especially high-level bureaucrats, not to touch the prime minister. 
not to deal with 1MDB in a fair manner or they'll end up in a drum. 1MDB. Whose money was it? It's actually a sovereign fund set up mostly to reinvest revenue collected from all kinds of economic activities in Malaysia, predominantly oil and gas. And what impact has has it had that that money's disappeared on the economy of Malaysia? It's a, oh, it's a it big has, amount of money, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. It uh, I think the Swiss, uh, the last report I've seen alerted to a figure of $6 billion US dollars. That's a huge amount for a country like Malaysia. Maybe it's nothing for Australia, but uh, for Malaysia, that's a huge amount of money. Yes, it has tremendous impact. Immediate impact that um, Malaysians have felt so far is the um, devaluation of the Malaysian ringgit. It is worth half of what it was as compared to the Malaysian, uh, Australian currency and the US dollars. And it means that anything that they're importing are now very expensive for local people. So as a result, it's a massive inflation in Malaysia. And of course, that hit ordinary people. And then the next thing is, well, in the absence of those money, we're talking about a regime that needs to bribe and pay to gain support and votes. The government has to find money elsewhere. And they do that by taxing ordinary people through GST, through all kinds of taxes that's already in place, but lifting the rates, and through going after small business people, you know, fining them for small little administrative errors and not allowing them to appeal. Because, you know, I have families who run businesses in Malaysia, and they all have got problems with the government and having to pay hefty fines for small administrative mistakes. What happened about Mahathir? Because he was challenging the government, wasn't he? Yes. (laughs) Interestingly, you know, he has a lot to answer for, for imposing very draconian law. A bit like the pot calling the kettle black. Absolutely. Yeah, so now he's coming out trying to champion this movement or campaign to get rid of Najib because, you know, even him, who is not that clean, has found it shocking to see, you know, a leader in Malaysia so openly and so blatantly stealing from the country. And that's really interesting. I mean, if he hadn't imposed all of those draconian laws in Malaysia and uh, basically eroding the judiciary system to the point where it is no longer independent from the executive and also um, destroying whatever um, system of of, uh, transparency and accountability left in the country, Najib wouldn't have been able to get away so easily. Are the sultans compliant in what's happening? Well, the Sultans uh, has so far been silenced, apart from the Crown Prince of Johor, who had been speaking out in a very subtle manner, you know, attacking corruption and theft and so on and so forth. I think part of the problem is the Sultans are also part of the system. Corruptions become the order of the day for them uh, in order to earn revenue through, you know, land deals, all kinds of things. Where does all this leave people who would in any other instance be activist? It's difficult. Everyone's having to watch their back, but still, you know, trying to find avenues and holes or or possibility to keep fighting. 
I think partly the Malaysian activists are quite tired for you know trying to fight for justice, for trying to fight for democracy, and then struggling uh, within a very repressive regime, uh, and also struggling to deal with the public who obviously are very scared given all of these authoritarian rules and, and quite underhanded manner by the government to stifle dissent. So it's a very difficult situation for them at the moment. How many activists would be in jail at this time? Not many, actually. They did charge people, but they haven't thrown them in jail. The charging of people is mainly just to send a message that if you oppose the government, even though you're standing out, standing up for your right or you're you know, fighting for democracy, you can be charged. And they haven't been put into jail with the exception of Anwar Ibrahim, the former deputy prime minister. The majority of people are, you know, have charges laid on them. They kind of are free, but they don't have the freedom to organise. And I'd imagine if Abraham gets out of jail, they'll find another charge against him and Absolutely. put him back in again. Yeah, if if he continues to remain a threat to the to the ruling regime, to Najib, then of course you know he'll be thrown into jail. Anybody who dare to challenge the system and the government or the prime minister will be punished accordingly. Has his wife been silenced? She hasn't been as outspoken. She used to be, you know, the thorn around who would never kind of failed any attempt to get some publicity in the media. But, yeah, she has been very quiet, actually, and that was one of the complaints by cartoonist Zuna, the award-winning cartoonist, Malaysian cartoonist, who say that, you know, her his um, inspiration comes from what, Rosma Manso, Najib's wife, say on on TV or in the media because um, you know she often say something that that are really controversial and it's really easy for him as a cartoonist to portray that because she, he believes strongly and he's, he claimed that it is an open secret in Malaysia that she runs a show in Malaysia. The prime minister is really just a shadow follower of his wife. You've met Zuna? Yes, several times. In fact, I first met him through the Stop Liners campaign in Malaysia. We visited him to ask him to help because he has a good following amongst the rural Malays, some of the rural Malays. And for the Stop Liners campaign, we need to, to reach out to the affected village, the Malays in the village, particularly the fishing communities who will be directly affected by the plant and the pollution. So we thought one effective way would be to invite Zuna to come over, and he did come over twice, and he was really supportive of the Stop Liners campaign, and he drew big crowd. He's out of the country now. He was in Australia just recently. Can he go back? Uh, we're not sure. I mean, he's got 43 years prison sentence laid in front of him. So if I were him, I probably wouldn't be in a hurry to go to Malaysia. He had been able to get into Malaysia and get out again. So that was fortunate. I'm not sure. It's up to Zuna to decide what he's going to do, but he's not going to stop his drawing, basically. So he does it through the internet? Uh, yeah, he used social media. How come they haven't shut it down? Social media? They couldn't because so much of Malaysia business is now done through social media and there's law protecting social media. 
it is those, you know, those very same laws that are giving activists the openings to challenge the government, to express the, their feelings openly, you know, for freedom, for democracy, and for their rights. So, if they shut down the internet, it affects the investment. It affects the business community. It will shut down the economy in Malaysia. So they can't afford to change it. So the government's in a bit of a bind, isn't it? Yes, but they did issue warnings uh, saying that people can be charged under Sedition Act if they post comments that threatens the security of, uh, of the government. And I think they have pulled out a few people as a showcase. People are a bit worried. I, I see Malaysian Facebook activists changing their, their identity to try and continue to steal comments on, on social media, but hopefully you know, not getting traced back to who they are. And that's environmental activist Lee Tan. And on the program next week, she'll be talking about what's happening in East Timor with the cement project and commenting on the shooting of the unarmed students in Papua New Guinea. I've been directed to page seven of the Australian Financial Review today, and the headline is Curtis Too Busy to Go to Jail, says Jakenko. That's his wife's name, yeah. Insider trader Oliver Curtis should not go to jail because he's a family man and has already suffered from vile and scandalous media coverage, the defence lawyers have argued. In a reference letter received released on Monday, Curtis's father, former chairman of Linus Corporation, Nick Curtis, asked Justice Lucy McCallum to consider a non-custodial sentence because Essex's investigation has already affected his son's lifestyle. Mr Curtis denied his son was a socialite and insisted he was a family man with strong commitments to his family. Curtis, 30, was found guilty of insider trading conspiracy after pleading not guilty to the charge. His sentencing hearing took place on Friday. His wife, Roxy, said her husband should not go to jail because he is the primary carer for the family and she would have difficulty making other arrangements. I would describe my role in public relations, talent management, event manager, as being a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week job. Live-in childcare has not been possible, in part due to a home being a three-bedroom apartment and in part because of privacy concerns. Moreover, her current nanny will be leaving in August and she is yet to find a suitable replacement. So next time, if you know someone who... um, has been in a spot of trouble, and I think um, you'd have to be in a lot of spots of trouble to be in the st- trouble that Mr Curtis is in. You go to the, the magistrate and say, I'm too busy to go to jail. Hi there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St Kilder. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, Ah, ah. That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. 
and it's that time of the month for our segment with Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. First, Bob, what's been called a merger from hell, a toxic mega merger, a deal that will create a global giant in agricultural technology that will control our entire food supply. And that's the proposed Bayer-Monsanto deal. Tell us more. Last year there were seven players in the chemical and seed field worldwide, but now we've had uh, Dow and DuPont get together, ChemChina and Syngenta, so China has come into it big time. And now two of the remaining companies, Monsanto and Bayer, are talking about getting together. Of course, Bayer is one of the biggest drug and agrochemical companies in the world. And if it gobbles up Monsanto, which seems likely for the small sum of $63 billion, then jointly Bayer and Monsanto would become the biggest seed and agrochemical giant in the world and would leave only four, the three that I've mentioned, plus BASF, which is a little tiddler that does agrochemicals as well, would have around 90% of all industrial seed and agrochemicals. So while the industrial model of food and fibre production would dominate the world for the moment, these four companies, which are already cross-licensing and working together, would have control. Not a pretty picture. The US government has still to agree, but as usual, Australia probably will roll over and say, good one, if indeed the merger goes ahead. Talk a bit more about the consequences. Well, it means that your regular broadacre farmers would really be in the hands uh, as far as the purchase of chemicals for um, herbicides and pesticides and also, of course, the seed, whether it's conventional or genetically manipulated. Mostly now farmers have to go back every year and buy seed so that they can comply with the patents and with the plant breeders' rights that cover most of the industrial seeds these days. It means that there's a stream of profits, of course, back to the head offices of these companies in Europe and North America. That's the main reason that these companies have become so interested over the last 50 years in um, capturing this market. And what happens to the farmers in many, many countries who still save their own seeds? What impact is going to have on them? We see, for instance, in Africa that there are huge pressures on them to uh, go into the industrial modes of farming. Even farmers who are, say, farming half to two hectares and are just eking out an existence are um, under pressure from their governments and from the seed and agrochemical industries to um, aggregate their farms, to bring in machinery, agrochemicals and the patented seed in order to uh, join the worldwide drift to this particular doomed model of production because the scarce inputs of oil, phosphates, land and water that the industrial model depends on are all going to be under extreme stress as the resources are depleted and particularly as global climate change kicks in even more. We need a new model. There are new models around of agroecological production in which farmers integrate their system rather than growing monocultures and that's what we and many other groups around the world are advocating as the way of the future. There have been several reports, a recent report in Europe, the IPES report, UN's IAASTD report from 2008, which was written by 500 scientists over five years and has got the acceptance of over 70 countries. These represent the models, I think, of the future when we find that industrial agriculture starts to collapse 
But our government here, for instance, is simply not interested. And yet, when you look at the figures, 40% of our farmers are earning less than $50,000 a year, and most of them under half a million dollars a year. Many survive simply by sending one of their members, the husband or or partner, off-farm to do uh, social work or teaching in the local town. They're marginal. Really, food security in Australia is going to take a, a big hit unless we do something very different because the focus of our governments at the moment is on growing broadacre monocultures of wheat, barley, oats, canola and other grains chiefly for export overseas, not to feed Australians. That's not going to be how we can do things in the future as we become an even drier and hotter continent. Can you talk a bit more about what's happening in the lead-up to the election? It's less than two weeks now. How is that impacting on GMs and farming in particular? It surely should be for country communities, but I think they're still pretty much in the thrall of the um, coalition of the Liberals and Nationals, although it was very interesting to see a piece on the ABC about Tony Windsor giving the Deputy Prime Minister, Barnaby Joyce, a very good run for his money in that electorate. Joyce hasn't delivered for the people in that community. I dare say that that Conservative coalition hasn't delivered for rural communities at all. Whether the Labor Party will be a great deal better, of course, is always a big question mark. I think that the great hope for the future of rural communities is going with the policies that the Greens are proposing, and I think there'll be a great deal more support for them out there this time around as well. Just looking at the voting card of the Liberals here in Victoria, for instance, it's amazing to see that for voting in the Senate above the line in Victoria, the Liberals are proposing number two for Family First, three for the Australian Christians who have a, an awful, awful set of policies, the Democratic Labor Party, the Australian Country Party and Darren Hinch's Justice Party. Where this can take us, I really, really don't know, except into a, uh, a cul-de-sac. I think we need a new broom. We need to get the old parties out of there and let's hope that some of the more far-sighted and so-called minor parties will get a run this time with a double dissolution. The quota in a double dissolution, of course, is just 8.5%. So hopefully we will see a good debate and more interest in small parties being represented and more broadly representing the community. Well, Nick Xenophon has come forward with his GM-free stance. Are there others following him or is he a bit of a loner, apart from the Greens? The Greens and Nick Xenophon are the two, and of course Xenophon's at the moment taking big hits from the Liberals in uh, South Australia because uh, he's running so strongly that the uh, lower numbers, particularly on the Liberal Party ticket, Sean Andrews, who's sitting senator, has been put fifth on the Liberal ticket. Not likely to get up, I'd say, and so he's at the moment out there um, storming around saying that uh, Nick Xenophon should be voted out for his GM free stance and also for denouncing the shonky uh, trade deals that the Liberals and the uh, National Coalition have done. Andrew Robb's so-called free trade agreement, the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, is a real shocker. The requirements there are, for instance, that um, the low-level presence of unapproved genetically manipulated foods and crops should be allowed in international trade. Another aspect of the free trade agreement, so-called free trade agreement, which would control our health, our um, privacy, our internet, 
and a whole raft of other things in our society completely unrelated to trade. Another awful aspect of it is that these kangaroo courts would be set up in which companies can sue our um, governments right from the top, from the federal government, the state and at the local level for doing the right thing, for instance, over coal seam gas and other controversial public issues, our health services. Our government could be sued for um, looking after the public interest in health. It's another example. If a company, a foreign company, feels that it has um, prospectively lost profits from operating in Australia for something that it wanted to do and the government says no, then the kangaroo courts under the investor state dispute provisions would enable them to take our governments into court to sue them for potentially billions of dollars. There are various cases on at the moment around the world uh, under these provisions already in which governments are being sued for hundreds of millions of dollars or indeed in some cases of billions of dollars for saying no to mining proposals that would tear down old growth forests, require governments to put up with water and land pollution, with the appropriation of land from First Nations people, and a whole raft of other totally unacceptable things. The free trade agreement, Nick Xenophon is rightly criticising. The Greens are also saying no. We really should be supporting the case for getting rid of those things And it's also true that GMOs are on the nose with many producers of food. Producers and also users. What we've seen in the last couple of weeks is that the flour millers of of, uh, Asia, who are big buyers of Australian wheat, barley and other grains, uh, for milling into flour, which is uh, sold throughout Asia, are saying loud and clear that uh, GMOs are simply political dynamite in Asia as well as elsewhere in the world. The Chinese in particular have made it very, very clear that if any unapproved genetically manipulated food crop, one that they have not approved, comes into their food supply, it will simply be rejected. Chinese shoppers, to their credit, are standing up on their hind legs and shouting. Uh, You might recall just several years ago that shonky producers in China put um, plastic substitutes into um, milk supplies in China Many uh, children were brain damaged or died. Other very unfortunate and very illegal activities have gone on in the Chinese food supply over the last several years. People are saying they simply won't accept it and now the Chinese government is listening and saying no to unapproved genetic engineering. They're enforcing it. So the flour millers in particular have sent this warning to Australian growers, we won't buy genetically manipulated wheat, forget about it. We don't want it in our flour supply. You'd better stay squeaky clean, GM-free. Also on the chemical front, of course, they're now banning many of the chemicals that are still used in Australia and that we see the Liberal National Coalition having been allowed to approve over the last several years. It's not good enough and they need to lift their game as well on the banning and the proper regulation of agrochemicals in our food supply as well. And of course the farmers aren't making money out of GM, they're much better off if they stay with non-GM. Well that's right, some 30% of our exports into Europe in dollar terms are for canola. It's got to be squeaky, zero tolerance, GM free. And, And the farmers are earning up to $70 a tonne 
for that canola that's going to the European market. So why anyone in their right mind would grow GM and risk that market worth in excess of a billion dollars a year, who knows? It's really just hard to tell what someone thinks they can gain by being able to spray Roundup herbicide, which is now known to be a human carcinogen, more often and at higher doses, and risk the loss of this immensely profitable and attractive market into Europe. Because, of course, canola, another broadacre crop that's um, grown primarily for export, if we lose the European market, well, there'll be a lot of, a lot of canola stored around Australia, I can tell you. Can you explain what golden rice is? It's another good idea that hasn't happened, although um, scientists have been working on it now for 30 years. Golden rice is so-called biofortified rice. It's called golden because it's yellow in colour. It's yellow because it has the gene for beta-carotene added to it. Beta-carotene is the precursor. That's to say when you eat something that's got beta-carotene in it, like a carrot, for instance, your body turns that into vitamin A. It's true there are vitamin A deficiencies among children, especially malnourished children in many countries, less developed countries around the world. And uh, the idea is that the golden rice, which has got the genetically manipulated beta-carotene added to it, would be a good substitute for conventional rice, which is low in vitamin A. As a result of vitamin A deficiency, a lot of children's health is adversely affected particularly their site. It seems like a good idea, except that it hasn't happened. They're still struggling to create a rice which will yield the equivalent of the conventional rices, so farmers are not too interested in growing it, and also that deliver the beta-carotene in a way that will actually increase the amount of vitamin A delivered. The real problem there is that someone who's got a diet that's, say, 90% polished rice doesn't have anything like the balanced diet that's needed to deliver good health overall. Other micronutrients will be missing and a good balanced diet would be delivered by eating leafy greens, for instance, or a small amount of animal products. But people are now so poor in many places around the the world and we've got some 800 million people either starving or malnourished They can't utilise the beta-carotene that's delivered by the golden rice, even if it's there, because their diet is so unbalanced and so poor. It can't provide any benefits anyway. So it's proved to be a dead end, really, although the Rice Research Institute is still soldiering on with it and saying, we can do it, we can do it, despite the now nearly 30 years of research into this. A huge amount of research and development money has gone into it, And I think the UN's line, which is now everybody has a right to eat and everybody has a right to a balanced diet, that's the way that we should be going because there is enough food in the world to feed 12 billion people. It's not being delivered. It's not affordable. 30% of it is being wasted. And we just have to do things differently and not think that a technical fix like genetically manipulated golden rice can really make the difference. It can't. We need to start getting food justice for the people of the world. How much is the capitalist system to blame about what's all this is happening? Let's say that uh, food is traded where it's most profitable, not where it's needed. And that's part of the problem. 
of why we've, as I said, we've got 800 million people starving or malnourished. We've got, on the other hand, over a billion people now obese from eating too much in many countries, including Australia. Food justice is what's needed. We need to start even feeding people in Australia more adequately. We see that now 100,000 people are homeless every night and most of those people are malnourished and ill-fed as well. Food Bank is the fast, one of the fastest growing aid agencies in our community, which is solely focused on feeding those in our community who can't be fed or can't feed themselves otherwise. We need to do something very, very different here. Let's finish with a good news story that in Palestine, seed saving there. Well, yes, it is. It's out on the web. People can look for Vivian Sansour, who's an environmentalist working in the West Bank, who has been uh, developing this project for a new national seed library. She's collecting Palestinian heirloom seeds. That's seeds that haven't been industrialised, are not privately owned, and are not genetically engineered in a bid to stop them disappearing from the local fields and from history. Of course, the Middle East, Iraq, Palestine, that general area were where our agriculture was developed 5,000 years ago and we forget that at our peril because many of the seeds that our industrial agriculture systems in the world depend on were developed and originated in Palestine and other local areas there. Vivian has got this project going. The seed library involves her in searching among Palestinian farmers who know about the old seeds, know about them, and many of them, of course, have saved them and are reusing them from year to year. And uh, she's including those in a gene bank from which they will be able to be retrieved should they be needed if the local agricultural systems fail. Because one of the other things that's happening in the West Bank is that the Israelis who control the water supply are um, limiting it very substantially. So the people in the West Bank who are receiving probably two or three litres of water a day to survive on when the recognised international minimum is about 20 litres are having trouble, of course, sustaining the cultivation of their traditional local fruits and vegetables. This is a really important project that Vivian's running to be applauded. We hope that it gets the support that it needs because it's part of the survival of the people in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip who need some measure of food sovereignty and self-reliance in order to survive. Malnutrition and hunger are rampant there because of the action of the Israeli government in uh, controlling the essential supplies of water, food and other daily essentials into those captured territories. Just thinking about this opposed to the the Doomsday Seed Project where they've been collecting seeds from all over the world and they've got them in underground. Not sure, quite sure where it is, up in the the Northern Hemisphere somewhere, but what's your opinion of that? Because that's controlled by companies like Gates and the Gates Foundation and others. Is that going to benefit the, the little people? I had some serious doubts about Svalbard, which is the global repository on Svalbard Island above the Arctic Circle. It is a repository now that's hoovered up all the seed varieties of the world. It's pretty comprehensive and governments have been contributing seed to it. You know, the real issue is, okay, it's there, it's, it's underground, it's in the frosty part of the world. 
the question arises, what is climate change going to mean? Is it going to be a permanent repository for those very scarce seed resources on which global agriculture of the future will depend? It was tested recently when Syrian farmers came back and said our agriculture has been completely destroyed by the war going on and the uh, disruption of our communities and the destruction of our lands and they were given back some of the seed that they and their government had earlier contributed to the Svalbard Seed Bank. So I think that is an encouraging sign at least that despite the fact that yes it was funded by the, the Gates Foundation and other philanthropic trusts from around the world and incidentally by governments as well including the Australian government as a um, doomsday repository of seed in the event that global agriculture collapsed. But why are governments doing that and then being so short-sighted that they can't see the threat posed by global climate change and the need to get onto a new paradigm of agricultural production now, before we hit the disaster that is coming? just defies description that people like the Australians cannot see that we need to do something serious about agriculture, not business as usual. Our farmers are going out of business. Our farmers can't survive under the current regime and the current paradigm. We do need to do things differently. We do need to be producing food so that food for Australians is secure, sustainable and local into the future. But our governments are all sitting on their hands and doing nothing about it ignoring our rural communities, allowing them to run down and become depopulated. Uh, we've got 134,000 farmers still in Australia. Most of them are soldiering on on their own. Most are unable to hire the help that they need to remain even marginally viable. They need our support. As a community, overall, we're expecting to go into the supermarket, the duopoly, screwing our farmers over the price of their produce so most of them are not independent or viable. We're allowing that to continue. It's just not a good situation. And yet we see people like Barnaby Joyce and the federal government holding discussions and having white papers and green papers and the rest of it and not really addressing the key problems that confront our ageing and marginalised, increasingly marginalised, rural communities. To their credit, we do see Nick Xenophon, the Greens and one or two others speaking up and saying we can't keep going on as we are, particularly in the face of global climate change, which we all now, now know is real, is hitting our food production systems and we've got to get real about doing something different. But for the bureaucrats and the politicians in Canberra, it appears to be just more of the same, more business as usual, and I think we have to shock them out of their complacency. And I'm hoping that Barnaby Joyce will be defeated by Tony Windsor and that we can really see some solid change when it comes to the relationship between people in the city and the people producing our food in the country. Uh, we also need much more support for the production of food in our cities. Backyard gardening is not incidental. Those of us who are, have got our backyard garden going, are supplying some of our foods at least, is an important part of the picture as well. Food and agriculture should be a topic on the current um, 
election agenda. They're not being heard, and I hope that um, it will be much more talked about in the next week or so uh, before we go to the polls. And that was Bob Phelps, who for many years has been the director of the Gene Ethics Network, talking about GMOs, food, agriculture, all very important things, as he said, that aren't being discussed in this election campaign. I think it's about 10 days to go. Hopefully people will start bringing it up. Palestinians are living under a crushing occupation as exiles or as second-class citizens inside Israel. This must stop, and Australia can do something about it. Right now, politicians are listening to what matters to people. They want to secure as many votes as possible this federal election. Please go to ivotepalestine.org.au and ask your candidates to pledge their support for Palestine. This is a campaign of the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. Please spend just one minute visiting ivotepalestine.org.au. A 3CR supporter. We shall overcome. We shall overcome someday. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian starves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Want to keep your radio radical? Well, it's not too late to donate to 3CR's 40th birthday radiothon and we still need your support. Call 94198377 or visit our website at 3cr.org.au. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street in Fitzroy during our office hours to pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR, 40 years of radical radio. There wouldn't be too many people in Australia who have been an activist for one cause for six decades. But one is singular Australian Dr Brian Sinwaratna, and the cause peace and justice for the Tamil population of Sri Lanka. And as you will hear in this interview, it is with a heavy heart he has reached this conclusion. Quote, In all the years that I have been in this struggle, I cannot think of any time that has looked so hopeless for the Tamils. Unquote. I spoke with Brian recently and began by pointing out that he'd attended a lecture on Sunday the 12th of June titled Reflections on Self-Determination, Justice and Peace in Post-War Sri Lanka, delivered by Mr Garapanan, a practising attorney in constitutional law and a lecturer in law at the University of Jaffna, and also a visiting Tamil whom he spoke with recently in Brisbane. Can you outline 
both the messages of from the lecture and the discussions which have led you to be so pessimistic? Firstly, the world in general and Sri Lanka in particular is celebrating, uh, rightly so, the demise of the Rajapaksa regime. But what I want to point out is that the person who has taken over is Rajapaksa's close friend, health minister and general secretary of his party. They all have this Mahavamsa mindset, and that is based on a legendary so-called historical document that Sri Lanka essentially is a Sinhala Buddhist country. Full stop, end of story. So that shifting over from one bunch with the Mahavamsa mindset to another bunch with the same mindset really achieves no purpose. And where the Tamils are concerned, I heard a, a statement which was beautifully put, which said, a lot has happened and nothing has happened, which is just about right. From the Tamil perspective, and I'm not a Tamil, I'm a Sinhalese, from the Tamil point of view in the North and the East, nothing has happened. And that is what depresses me. And to be specific, firstly, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and International Crisis Group have not been admitted to the country. More importantly, the Prevention of Terrorism Act, which has been condemned by every human rights organization ever since its inception, remains. Mr. Sirisena, the new uh, president, will not allow an international investigation into war crimes. The civilian population is not under the government, but it's under the military, the Sinhalese military and the Sinhalese police. In other words, it's a police state. And my question is, if that's the reality, nothing has changed for the Tamil people. You have friends, many friends, in the, the north and the northeast of Sri Lanka. What stories do they bring you back? What is life like for the Tamil people in the north? Dreadful. I think that is just about one word summary. In Jaffna, which is the area that has produced more professionals than any other part of Sri Lanka or anywhere in the world for that matter, when I was Associate Professor of Medicine, over 70% of the medical students came from Jaffna. Today, Jaffna is struggling. Nobody goes to school. The school teachers are ex-army people who have got no expertise in teaching and none of not, they can't even speak the language. So education has dropped off to the point at which some 70% passed the GCE, General Certificate of Education, ordinary level, and only 15% went in to do tertiary education. That is unheard of. Never in the history of that country, as far as I know, has Jaffna done so badly. And what is going on in Jaffna is actually drugs distributed by the armed forces and uh, no work. They don't go to school. Virtually a shutdown in terms of education. Coming to the, to the Batikalo area, that's on the east of Sri Lanka, that has been completely lost. Its uh, chief minister is a Muslim. He has recently behaved in an outrageous f fashion. Anyway, where the Tamils are concerned, that's gone. Trincomalee, higher up north near the harbour, that's all gone because it has been signalized. In other words, Sinhalese people have been moved from the south to the Trincomalee area as it was to the east when I was growing up 70 years ago where the militant Tamils, the LTTE, had a de facto state, all of that had been destroyed. The ex-combatants who have been so-called rehabilitated, they are being monitored 
and harassed by the armed forces. And most importantly, the Tamil people have to live with an army of occupation in the north and the east. And Mr. Sirisena and worse still, even more so, the Prime Minister, Ranil Vikramasinghe have stated in the clearest possible terms that the army remains in Jaffna. Now, if the army is going to remain in Jaffna, then it is critical that Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch are able to set up shop there so that the people can have someone to complain to. They can't go to the police. I mean, I have just published a book, which I gave you a copy of, which will be available here, called Sexual Violence Against the Tamils in Sri Lanka. It was uh, printed only about three days ago, in which it spells it all out. There's a whole chapter on the new Sri Lankan government, and I'm afraid it's not uh, happy reading. Have the army taken over a lot of the Tamil land? Yes, they've taken over not only a lot, but the most productive Tamil lands have been taken over. Some 7,000 acres of what is normally an arid area, but which is very fertile, just that 7,000 acres. And Mr. Sirisena said, as soon as he got into power, that he will return the lands to their rightful owners. He didn't mention the word Tamil, incidentally. About six months later, only a 1,000 acres, if that, of the 7,000 acres has been handed back to the Tamil people who own the land. So 6,000 acres is still under army occupation, and they say they want it for security purposes. Well, if they want it for security purposes, they better pay the rightful owners uh, and bite off them rather than acquire it uh, uh, without any compensation whatsoever. But most importantly, Mr. Sirisena is has the same mindset as Mr. Rajapaksa. The Tamil areas basically needs to be ceased to exist and be populated by Sinhalese. And that's happening at an alarming rate. And so are the Buddhists. The Buddhist temples are being made in areas where there are no Buddhists. I mean, in the north and the east, there are either Hindus or Christians. The Hindu shrines are being knocked down. The Christian churches are being destroyed and being replaced by Buddhist statues and Buddhist temples. In That is a new word called Buddhistization. In other words, making an area which is non-Buddhist into Buddhist. So there's singularization, which is the uh, making of the Tamil areas into a Sinhalese area, and that's proceeding apace, and uh, the replacement of the religions by Buddhists. And there are things that, uh, in my opinion, you cannot reverse. I mean, if there are enough Sinhalese sent uh, to the north and the east, the Tamil homelands will cease to exist, and it already is well on the way to that. And that's why I feel hopeless about the situation. The United States had a motion passed in Geneva, seconded, incidentally, by the government of Sri Lanka, uh, to have an international impartial commission of inquiry into the violation of human rights and disappearance, etc. Mr. Sirisena says that he is not going to have international involvement in this. In other words, the international judges and lawyers are not going to be allowed to come and do any investigation of any sort into Sri Lanka. So he's going to have a domestic investigation. And Amnesty International wrote a, a wonderful paper 
title, I can't remember the exact words, I think called uh, 20 Years of Make-Believe Investigations, a history of failed investigations in Sri Lanka and a domestic investigation into uh, human rights abuse and disappearances and murder will be another, yet another failed investigation. In other words, a non-investigation. You said there disappearances, people killed. What you have now in the north is a traumatised population, surely? Terribly traumatised, depressed, and I gather, and this I can't uh, guarantee, I heard it has the highest suicide rate anywhere in Sri Lanka. Not without reason, because they have got no hope. You know, if you take the ex-Tamil uh, Tigers, who are so-called rehabilitated, in Kilinochi, where they are headed, de facto state, they are shunned amazingly by the Tamil people. Because if the Tamil people speak with them, the army get at them and say, whom did you speak to? What did they say? So that the Tamil people are avoiding the ex-LTT and the, they got no work, no jobs, no nothing. And their only way of earning a living is forced prostitution in my uh, a book I have called Prostitution for Economic for as a means of survival. I mean, they've got to feed their children. They've got to buy food. They've got no income. And this is the only way that they can... And that, I think, is dreadful. Are you aware of what rehabilitation means for the tigers? Yeah. Rehabilitation means uh, to be told, you better keep your tail down. You lost and you will have to cope with the Sri Lankan government, we will tell you what to do. And that applies not only to the Tamil Tigers, to the whole of the North and the East. I went for a lecture yesterday, which put it very well, and said this is to legitimize an illegitimate setup. The illegitimate or unacceptable setup is the armed forces in the North and the East. And the Sri Lankan government says, well, they are there to stay. And the Tamils will have to learn to cope with it second-class citizens or non-citizens or whatever. So the Sri Lankan government has no intention whatsoever of dealing with the rights of the Tamil people to live with equality, dignity, and now to live at all. What's happening for the fisher folk in the north and the east? Because that's a very important part of their their culture is, is fishing. And I know that during the last times of the, of the, the war... They lost a lot. They lost their boats. The, the Sinhalese took over. The military took over. The, they were bombed. What, what's happened? Well, nothing's happened. The Sinhalese uh, fishermen have been actually paid, encouraged and even paid to go into the Tamil areas and fish. And there are limitations on what the Tamil fishermen can do. They can only fish between certain hours. And the Sinhalese fishermen have got a run of the uh, fishing rights. The fishing industry in the Tamil North has now almost ceased, and so also agriculture. You see, the two main sources of income for the Tamil people in the North and the East has been fishing and agriculture. Agriculture is no longer possible because uh, the lands have been taken over. Fishing is not possible because, the, for a start, the Sinhalese fishermen have been brought into the area, and the Tamil fishermen... Their lands have been taken and they have been relocated 15, 20 kilometers away from the sea. Now, how on earth can they fish without, they can't carry their boats for 15 uh, kilometers? So in other words, the Tamil people have been 
virtually made, what shall I call it, non-people. That's the best term I can... They don't live. They exist. The army treats the area as conquered territory. And the Tamil people, and the Muslim people for that matter, as the victims, the spoils of war. And that's going to go on. And that is the enormous disadvantage of the Tamil people. Frankly, I think that the Tamil people in the north and the east will virtually cease to exist. And in my book, that is genocide. I know there are people who do not use that word, but I am only repeating the word as defined by the UN convention, uh, genocide convention, as the destruction in whole or in part of an ethnic, uh, religious, cultural, etc. group of people. And this part is the part that lives in the north and the east. Every time you use the word genocide, they say, you know, you can't use that word because there are Tamils in the south who are doing very well. Maybe. But that's why the Genocide Convention said in whole or in part. And that part is the part that lived in the north and the east. And I think the word genocide is very valid. And I can certainly justify it, as I have in this book that I just spoke about, as applicable to the Tamil people in the north and the east. Can you talk more about the sexual abuse of women and children, and not only women and children, but men as well? Yes. There are 90,000 war widows in the Tamil areas. They haven't got houses, you know. The houses that have been built are just sheds, a couple of uh, zinc sheets and uh, a couple of six poles have been supplied. You can kick that down and... The army don't even need to kick it down. They can just enter a house, rape a woman, because there are no men. Uh, 90,000 war widows, there are no males remain, because the males have either been uh, killed or locked up in detention centers in the south and elsewhere. The government says that there are no detention centers. That's arrant nonsense and absolute lies. Uh, when the High Commissioner for Human Rights visited the Jaffna area, he was given a list of people who had disappeared and who are now locked up. And Mr. Sirisena and Mr. Vikramasinghe, who is actually more dangerous than Mr. Sirisena, say, no, if they are missing, they are dead. I know High Commissioner Zaid, Honorable uh, Prince Zaid, said that's a, you know, it's a very traumatic thing to say that the people who are missing are dead. You can't have 20,000, 30,000 people who are missing and just say they are dead and leave it at that. They have to say, how did they die? Where did they die? Where are their remains? I'm sorry to paint such a a grim picture of Sri Lanka, but I have been campaigning for the Tamil people since when I was a 16-year-old boy in 1948. And as I wrote to you in my email, I can think of no time in all these 70-odd years where the future of the Tamil people has been so poor, uh, virtually non-existent, that would be the word to use in all these years. Is there any leadership of the Tamil people in the north or have they been victimised also by the military and the police? As a Sinhalese, I've got to be reasonably careful in what I say, but uh, I have got to the point at which I don't care. Uh, if they want to uh, take action against me, they can, defamation or whatever. I, I no longer care. But the Tamils have no leadership. That is the big deal. 
Apart from Mr. S.J. V. Chavanagam, who was the Tamil leader for many years, the Tamils have had no leadership, and currently the leadership is zero. The so-called Tamil National Alliance, whose head is supposed to be uh, representing the Tamil people and the TNA, is almost part of the government. The only person whom I had hopes would uh, be a real leader was former uh, Chief Justice, uh, Supreme Court Judge, Justice Vigneswaran, who is the head of the Northern Provincial Council. But I gather that the Tamil National Alliance want him removed. And the whole of the TNA, with the exception of one person, is against Vigneswaran. Once they get rid of Vigneswaran, the Chief Minister Vigneswaran, the Northern Provincial Council, the Tamils are gone. This is Tuesday Home Time on 3CR, and you're listening to an interview with Sri Lankan Australian Dr. Brian Sinuaratna. A great support for the people in the north has been the Catholic Church, and I don't know about the other Christian churches as well. What's their situation at the moment? The greatest problem there is that the leader that the Tamils had, uh, not a political leader, but as a leader, was the Right Reverend Bishop Rapu Joseph of Mena. He had a devastating stroke and uh, currently is unable to talk at all. The other members of the Catholic Church are doing a job. I know uh, Father Jebal and Cruz, who came and spent a, week, a couple of days with me in Brisbane, he's working. But there's a limited amount that the Catholic Church can do. I mean, I'm not a Catholic, I'm an Anglican. The Anglican Church has done nothing. We had a a dreadful Anglican bishop called Bishop Francis or something. Uh, he was part of the government, and I think that he has now uh, been removed from the church. He may well be part of the government. But the Anglican church, uh, I am shocked and greatly disappointed, and that's my church, has done very little. The Catholic church still struggles on. But without the leadership of uh, the bishop of uh, Mana, Bishop Rayapu Joseph, their role is decreasing. Is there any support from the Tamil area in India for what's happening in the north? Yes, <clears throat> there is great encouragement from Tamil Nadu. Uh, the problem about Tamil Nadu is that there are so many factions and uh, bickering there. The Chief Minister Jayalalitha has been very supportive of the Tamil struggle. The question is whether the Chief Minister Jayalalitha can remain Chief Minister. That's another story. Uh, there's Vaiko, who has no party and therefore no power. He has been very vocal. Uh, perhaps the most vocal person in or outside Sri Lanka has been Vaiko. Uh, I have not met him, and uh, I can't get there because the last time I was invited to Tamil Nadu to, for a meeting, the central government in Delhi delayed my visa, issuing my visa to the point at which uh, the meeting was all over. But <coughs> 75 million people in Tamil Nadu, if they can unite and jump up and down, then I think there is uh, some hope that the Tamils can be rescued. You see, there's a problem here that the only hope that the Tamils can have is either a separate state, which will be totally blocked by India, a federal state, yes, federate with whom? With Colombo is a waste of time. But they can have a confederation with India. Whether that is a practical proposition or not, I don't know. I'm a doctor of medicine. I'm not a constitutional lawyer. But if 
a confederation or federation with Colombo is what is aimed at, it will be a no-hoper. But a confederation with India might be. Just explain why you say that India would block. India would block a separation because if India supports a separation, then other Indian areas like Tamil Nadu, Hyderabad, and God knows, 10 other places will say, okay, you separated, uh, you uh, supported the separation of the uh, Tamil North and the East in Sri Lanka. What about us? They get uh, separation, so do we. Talk more about the economy of Sri Lanka and the position of China in Sri Lanka today. Sri Lanka is broke. Not it, just broke, it's in terrible debt. In to an extent that the debt service payments are greater than the income of the country. Now, it is most unfortunate that I got a crucial bit of information soon after my book went for a printing, and therefore it couldn't get in. And that is something that came out in the U.S. Congress Committee, which I think sat on the 10th of June, where one of the congressmen said, referring to this very subject that you're talking about, that the debt, the financial debt to China is $8 billion U.S. dollars. The debt to the IMF is probably two or three times that. And when uh, the new government came and said, we are going to stop all these Chinese projects in Sri Lanka, such as the making of a new harbor, China simply said, yeah, you can do that if you like, but the money has come from the Chinese bank and they will turn around and sue you. So they had to restart all the Chinese projects. The army which are about 175,000 at the end of the war, is now 250,000 or more. You see, a lot of this information we have to glean in a surreptitious way because the Sri Lankan government will not even tell us how many armed forces they have or the need to expand the army despite the end of the conflict. Who is the enemy? The enemy is, of course, the, the Sinhalese people and the likes of myself uh, who are Sinhalese activists. Uh, in Colombo and others, but they cannot justify the expansion of the army and the payments to the army. I heard only yesterday that the army have been told that if, if they have a third child, the government will give them a substantial amount of money for having a third child. It's not uh, information that has been freely available. But in answer to your question, Sri Lanka is deeply in debt and getting deeper into debt. You know, I just told you that the gross national product of the country is less than the debt service repayment. So that, for a start, they don't have money even to pay for the debt service. So what do they do? They borrow more money from the IMF to pay the debt and get into deeper debt. Economically, I think uh, Sri Lanka is heading for a failed state if it hasn't done so already. Then there's the issue of why is the IMF continuing to pay money to Sri Lanka? Yes, that's a very good question, but the IMF always has. If you go to any trouble spot and the IMF gets involved, the thing that happens is that the IMF will give you the money and with conditions, and the conditions are that uh, some of the subsistent things like rice, sugar, bread, etc., the prices go up. So that the ordinary people, the people at the bottom of the ladder, they are the people who get hit 
by the IMF sanctions or the IMF requirements, not sanctions. IMF says, these are not sanctions. You want our money, we can call the tune. And the tune is that you will devalue the rupee, which makes it even more difficult for the people at the bottom of the ladder. I have actually, perhaps rashly, said that there's going to be another uprising. Not the Tamils versus the Sinhalese, but the haves versus the have-nots. The haves being the people at the top, about, what, 1% of the people in the country or less, and the have-nots at the bottom who are now increasing markedly. There is no middle class in Sri Lanka any longer. The middle class has either become very wealthy and therefore moved up to the upper class, or most of them have gone down into the the sort of no-hoper crowd at the bottom. I'm just wondering about the Chinese investment in Sri Lanka. When they invest in other countries, they normally bring their own workers in with them. Has that happened in Sri Lanka? Oh, very much so. I know of uh, two or three projects. One was of growing cassava, a large area of Sri Lanka. They started growing cassava. You can make make that into chips, etc. The Chinese to plant cassava in Sri Lanka, despite the fact that our people there are more than capable of planting cassava, and then send Chinese workers to pull the cassava out of the ground. Then, on special permits, they managed to get the government to allow them to export the cassava back to China, where they made it into chips and shipped it back to Sri Lanka at about 300% interest. Um, That's going on. And a lot of uh, uh, Chinese are working in uh, Jaffna uh, and in other parts. And there, too, there's a huge amount of secrecy. Uh, They built a harbor in the south where Mr. Rajapaksa's home is. And that harbor is defunct. And even worse still, the airport, the Matala Airport, Rajapaksa Matala Airport or whatever it's called, they've got one flight or two flights a week. It's an empty airport. I've seen pictures of it. The filming crew went, and you I didn't see a single person passenger. And someone said, well, there were two or three passengers around. I think they're waiting for two days for the next flight. I don't know what they're going to do with the airport. There are billions of dollars that are spent in that and the, and the harbor, uh, and it's uh, uh, hanging around and... This is not money that has been given to the Sri Lanka government. It has been lent so that for the non-use, this useless harbour and airport, Sri Lanka is paying interest to the Chinese. Has there been a reaction from the right-wing Buddhist monks to the introduction of Chinese workers? Oh, the Buddhist monks, the politically active Buddhist monks, and I speak as a half-Buddhist myself because my mother was a, a devout Buddhist, they have been the curse of Sri Lanka. And they are actually getting more and more violent. Uh, they say, oh, Buddhism is a, a peaceful uh, religion. It may well be. At least the Buddhism practiced by my mother was. But the politically active Buddhist monks are thugs. I have recorded nine DVDs on the human rights violations in Sri Lanka. And in, in those DVDs, you can see Buddhist monks going and destroying Christian churches and Hindu mosques, uh, Hindu temples, and uh, more recently, uh, Muslim mosques. 
Uh, they are an extraordinarily violent lot. It's one of them who assassinated my uncle, SWRD Bandaranaka, the then Prime Minister, in the first political assassination in 1958. They're an extraordinarily violent lot. And neither President Sirisena nor Prime Minister Vikram Singh or any other singular leader is prepared to take these hooligans on. How dare I call the Buddhist monks hooligans? I'm not saying that the Buddhist monks are hooligans, but I'm saying that the politically active Buddhist monks are behaving like hooligans and thugs. But have they reacted to the Chinese? Uh, not that I know of, but uh, if there is any move to do anything to harm this singular Buddhist country, that is where they get involved and say, no, it's time you went, which is what they did to my uncle. As you say that the, the government of Sri Lanka is now looking toward the West before it was China, is Sri Lanka going to be a focal point of conflict between the West and China because the West is moving in on China right up the, the Pacific when they've got troops in Philippines, troops in Australia, troops in Vietnam, they're rattling the war game against China. Could that impact in Sri Lanka? Absolutely. Uh, you see, just as oil is the problem in the Middle East, the geographical position of Sri Lanka astride the Indian Ocean is the problem there. You see, the Indian Ocean is not the largest ocean on Earth, but it's certainly the most commercially active ocean anywhere on Earth. 70% of the oil container shipments in the world go across this Indian Ocean so that it's crucial for India and the US and China to get a foothold in Sri Lanka, which is astride the Indian Ocean. Then there is also another problem for China, and that is called the China String of Pearls. These are basically military installations from the oil-supplying Middle East to China. One of the pearls in that chain is Sri Lanka. So uh, China's foothold in Sri Lanka is not going to go away. Now, where the, uh, America is concerned, all that America wanted was for the Sri Lankan leadership to look at Washington rather than uh, Beijing. And that needed a change in uh, leadership, and I think... I don't think, I know that America had a crucial role to play in getting rid of the Rajapaksas, and I am not going to go into that uh, at this point. Finally, Brian, is there any bright spark at all? I'm afraid not. Um, the only spark that's going to occur is if the West understand that the progress that had been made is non-progress, where the Tamils are concerned. Uh, where the Sinhalese are concerned, there has been some progress in that you can, at last, talk reasonably freely. How long that's going to last, God only knows. And the press is reasonably free. These are all sort of relative terms. Where the Tamil North and the East are concerned, there is no hope. I think that unless we in the international community act, and by act I mean we force the United Nations to carry out a mandate as they did in East Timor and ask the people in the North and the East what you want to do. 
And if they want separation or federation or whatever, then as we did in East Timor, the United Nations will have to deliver. Will the United Nations deliver? The chance is virtually zero. Unless there is international pressure of ordinary people, uh, decent people in the world. And uh, I might say, and I'm not boosting Radio 3CR, this is one of the very few stations that even airs what is going on in the world. And I have spoken, where Australia is concerned, I have tried to speak to every radio, TV and other station, even the press. You can't get a foot in. Well, you can certainly get a foot here at 3CR. That's Dr. Brian Sinuratna, Singhalese Australian doctor who's been working for 60 years for the Tamils in Sri Lanka. Palestinians are living under a crushing occupation as exiles or as second-class citizens inside Israel. This must stop and Australia can do something about it. Right now, politicians are listening to what matters to people. They want to secure as many votes as possible this federal election. Please go to ivotepalestine.org.au and ask your candidates to pledge their support for Palestine. This is a campaign of the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. Please spend just one minute visiting ivotepalestine.org.au. A 3CR supporter. We shall overcome. We shall overcome someday. And that's it for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at four, but stay tuned in about one minute for Dunbar Law. Bye for now.